Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, I'm your host Ethan Bridge and I just want to start off this episode by saying thank you all for joining. The conditions of the way in which we all work are shifting. It's likely that if you're a business owner or an employee that your workplace now allows employees to work from home or enjoy flexi working hours. Not only does it save money on office space, it allows employees to achieve a greater work-life balance. Some employees may have families, yet they commute two hours in and two hours home from work each day, sacrificing time that could have been spent elsewhere. Yet, if they work from home, this could all be solved. There's no need to even come into the office in most cases. It's simply been the norm for such a long time that any change doesn't seem to make sense. Remote working is a no-brainer in my opinion. This is what today's guest on the podcast has come to speak about. Daniel Ramsey is the CEO and co-founder of MyOutDesk, a California-based business process services company with delivery offices located in the US and the Philippines. By having MyOutDesk virtual assistants, or VAs, work from their fully equipped home offices in Southeast Asia, Daniel and his team are able to offer significant cost savings to their clients, compared to similar USA-based service providers who may charge anywhere from $15 to $50 per hour. MyOutDesk is able to offer a better service and results in a subscription model with substantial savings. This was definitely an eye-opening conversation for myself. Times are changing and companies need to adapt to these evolving working conditions. I can't wait for you all to hear what Daniel has to say, so without any further ado, let's dive straight into today's episode. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I am super excited today because we have Daniel Ramsey on the show. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ethan. Thanks for having me today. The pleasure is mine, honestly. Thank you for your time. So for the listeners that don't know who you are, do you mind just giving us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Sure. I'm the CEO and founder of MyOutDesk. We're a global talent firm. Basically, we help businesses scale through providing high caliber talent globally. So we have folks in the Philippines and right now we serve around 1,200 people um, and we found, find them basically jobs and businesses that need talent. And we find you know, businesses that really absolutely want to grow and scale, but they can't because they don't have somebody to help them or it's hard to find. And um, we put those two uh, folks together and then we extend our mo- the mod movement, which is our version of a, a contribution piece in our business. Incredible. I can't wait to find more about that later on in the show. But the way I like to start all my episodes is throwing it back with my guests and asking them about their time at school. So let's focus on a 14-year-old version of yourself. How were you in school? Were you the class clown? Did you just cruise by, get done what needed to get done, bang average grades? Or did you excel? Did you absolutely smash school? I love it. Uh, So my favorite I, when people ask this question, I'm the straight B student. And let me tell you why, Ethan, because getting A's was a lot of work and getting C's weren't good enough, right? Mm-hmm. So I exactly got, uh, you know, basically a 3.0 throughout college and high school. Um, and like school was fine for me. I mean, it wasn't like awesome and it wasn't really um, hard either. Um, but 
like in business, I was just always looking for how to have the most fun, do the least amount of work and, uh, you know, enjoy my time. So did you go to university or did you go yeah, another I did. Way? Yeah, no, I did. Um, in fact, um, I was, so my story's funny. I knew I wanted to be in business as, as young as like seven and eight. And what happened, and this is a, this is a funny, I'm, I sat in the back of the bus, right, in school. And I grew up kind of poor. So we grew up in a trailer park and, you know, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so my parents were like, well, you should try to, you know, get jobs. So I did odd jobs like mowing lawns and doing these other things. But my favorite job was selling candy bars. And I'd get Snickers and I'd sit at the back of the bus and I, I literally you know, would just sell Snickers all day. And they were a dollar. And there was this one Friday, it was a nice spring day. It was, I had a warm chocolate Snickers and I hadn't ate any of my own product. I was like that good drug dealer, right? I didn't eat my own stuff. Um, so, but this day was different. I was going to do it myself. I was, uh, this was going to be my Snickers. And a guy comes up and says, Hey, Daniel, can I have one? I'm like, no, I, I've only got one left. And He's like, here's five bucks. I'm like, no. And he whips out a $20 bill, stuffs it in my face and says, give it to me now. And I was like, here's, here's your candy bar. So, give me my $20. Yeah, 20 bucks. I mean, it was a big deal. Um, and back, you know, it's like the late 80s, early 90s. So um, 20 bucks was a big deal. I got off the bus, went to the corner store, bought another Snickers for like 25 cents because that's how much they cost back then. And I was hooked on business. So I was lucky um, going through school, um, even as in high school and middle school, I just, I always knew I was going to be a business owner. And so I went to uh, business school. I went to the, um, Sac State University in California and it's in the capital and got a business degree in finance and it was fine. And I enjoyed myself and, you know, it wasn't challenging. I ended up at Ethan, as you can tell, I'm a straight B student. So I had a 3.3, <laughs> you know, like even in college. And so, um, yeah, I mean, school is fine. I learned some things. Um, honestly, as a business person now, though, most of the lessons that I've learned ha have been because I've had to, you, you know, really get uh, what I like to say, I, I have to get hit across the face to learn a lesson. And so in business, usually that happens um, financially or emotionally. So um, most of the lessons that I've had, you know, growing and scaling a large business have been um, across the face. Somebody's punched me across the face. So that's, uh, school was great, but I, I, don't, I don't credit it for any of my success. I love that you say that as well, that, that typical kid. Not typical because not many people do it, but the entrepreneurial kid that sit at the back of the bus selling candy. Yeah. Because yeah. my parents are very much the same as what yours did, but mine in the sense that said, if you want something, we're not paying for it. Yeah. Your own money. So I used to flip stuff on eBay and do all that sort of thing to essentially make my own money so I could buy the things. But then that has built me to become dependent on myself to buy things opposed to relying on my parents, which in yeah. the long term... I am so thankful for at the time I was like, Oh, just give me the money. I really want this now. But the fact that they then made me try to earn the money myself has ultimately shaped me to valuing money so much more. So I think it's great that you say that as well. So what was your first taste of entrepreneurship then other than that, like the first real taste of entrepreneurship? Cause did you get a full-time job coming out of university or was entrepreneurship something you went straight into? 
Well, you know, that, that I almost got sidetracked by like society and media. Um, you know, as a kid, I've all, I, I wanted to build things and um, going into college, I got a finance degree and then I just did what you do, which is go on on campus interviews and ended up taking a job for a bank. And um, for three years, I muddled through kind of working for others and not being an entrepreneur. But um, at some point I bought a house, the real estate person that sold it to me and the mortgage person that did the financing they didn't spend more than a couple hours with me and each of them made thousands of dollars and neither was like horrible and neither were like amazing, right? They were just okay at what they did. And I was like, man, uh, together they made like 12 or $13,000 and I thought I can do that. Like I can do that job. And, um, you know, 12 or $13,000 was like, you know, took me three or four months to make that kind of money. So, uh, my first um, thing that I did right out of uh, my my first job out of college was quit my job and then I became a real estate guy, um, which led me to be a contractor, which led me to be a mortgage person and eventually, you know, own my outdesk, which is a, basically a virtual assistant company. For sure. So obviously you were inspired to do real estate by the fact that you saw the how much money they were making from it, but yep. also the fact that you knew you'd be good at it. So at first, mm. what was the money like? Was it almost, did it put you off the fact or did, was you, did you go straight in and earn good money from it? How did no, it go? No, I mean, it's interesting because the first commission that I earned, I paid off my truck. I, I had a truck that I had payments on and <clears throat> you know, I, I closed the first deal and I was like, wow, I can, I now no longer have a car payment. And, and it was amazing. Um, but over time, you know, I'd opened an office, hired a person to kind of run my front desk and closed a couple deals. And I literally, this is how naive I was. My, in the first year, I thought I'd help one person a month buy or sell a house. That was my whole goal. And then in the summer, in like June, July, and August, I had three different deals fall out of escrow, meaning they weren't going to close. So for three months, I had zero income. After that, I was like, okay. Uh, that's it. Now I'm going to have five people at all times. And really that's what started me on my journey. Um, I, <laughs> Ethan, I, I bought a chair in my office so that I could take naps during lunch. I mean, this is, <laughs> this was my first entrepreneurial experience. And I'm like, I'm just going to design my own life. I'm going to, I'm going to take naps. I'm going to have great lunches. I'm going to go in the, to the gym in the morning and play sports. I was going to design this amazing, you know, this idea of what being an entrepreneur was. And, um, it only took like three or four months for me to realize I had to work and work a lot harder than I'd ever worked before. So did your passion for the work and did you almost realize that you worked too much in that sense hence why you no longer do real estate no i mean you know what i love about um when you're an entrepreneur is there are um rewards and also costs the cost associated with being an entrepreneur is you've got to work a lot i mean in the beginning mm -hmm. it is you're wearing 50 million different hats um, which means your hands in everything. But as time goes by, you can hire people, you, you start developing a little bit of cash flow. Um, you know, things get better over time. And now I would never go back to having a job or I would never go back um, 
to kind of having a small business now that where we're at. But to be honest, the journey is what drove me. Like the learning along the way, understanding what it meant to hire somebody, understanding what it meant to build a CRM, understanding what it meant to create an audience of people who actually were interested in what I said. I mean, that's those kind of things just... Uh, if you're listening and you're curious if you should be an entrepreneur, like those kind of things just filled me up to take on new projects and learn new things. So for me, it was very simple. I just like to be, um, always be developing. For sure. So where did my outdesk come to fruition then? Is there a funny story behind it? Because I mean, I can tell you've already, you're full of stories. So was yeah. there a funny story behind my outdesk and how that came to fruition yeah, and why it, you stopped real estate? Well, yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, I accidentally started this really big business. I mean, and that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. Um, so I was a real estate guy. I was a developer mortgage real estate guy and we were building properties and selling them for other people and at some point the market crashes you know it's 2006 we have a huge business three offices lots of employees i'm really enjoying what i'm doing and i'm learning and building and growing and then the crash comes in 2007 in in california and specifically in sacramento like it went it, it our market got cut in half like if your house was worth $200,000, like within six months, it was all of a sudden worth a hundred thousand, like literally overnight. And, um, so that caused me to, uh, like we, we just didn't have any cash flow. No, I mean, you can imagine at that time, if you were yeah. selling a house, you're like, well, I'm not going to sell it for half of what it was worth last month, you know? And if you were buying a house, you're like, well, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to buy anything now in six months. It's going to be worth less. So, you know, immediately in one quarter, 90% of our revenue as a company went away, like in one quarter, which if you're in business and you were operating at a certain budget and then all of a sudden there's just no money left. Um, so we closed all of our offices down. I moved into my home at the time. So now I'm running my real estate practice out of my personal home. Um, I went from, you know, three offices, a lot of employee down to one person who was helping me basically. And, uh, you know, it was through that pain of like, oh my gosh, I screwed up. I didn't forecast this. I didn't even think it was happening. I didn't have cash reserves. I, I wasn't prepared for this kind of a market correction. And um, it was through that pain that we retooled our business, started going after bank-owned properties, investors, short sales, and kind of went through a transition and at that moment, I needed more help because I'd let everyone go except for one person. And she was just like going crazy because I was like, here's more work, here's more work, here's more work. And um, so we hired our first virtual assistant in, in the end of 2007. And then in 2008, I was at a conference and a friend said, hey, can you help me find a virtual assistant? And I was like, yeah, I can, uh, but I've got to charge you something. Hmm. And literally, accidentally, that's how my outdesk was born. A friend said, can you get me five? And then it turned into a, we charged him a little bit of margin. He was happy. He ended up, we ended up in, on his account having 17 people in his business. And we, re, you know, quickly realized that we were in a um, gold rush era. Like virtual assistants were, it was a new thing back in 2007, 2008 businesses needed help and 
we were selling the picks and shovels and not the land or not the gold. You know, we were, we were supplying the supplies. And um, so that, that's kind of how the business, you know, was born. And it was an accident, really. For sure. And I'd like how you say it was new back then. I still tend to say that it'd be relatively new now because <laughs> I don't well, think many people are adjusting to this digital lifestyle when it comes to business. Like virtual assistants, one, they're extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. Two, they're just as good, if not better, than someone you could hire in-house. And three, they're going to be way more productive. So why, why don't people hire like virtual employees that's the real question and so how have you seen it develop over the years so far and where do you think it's going to go well it's an interesting um question uh when we first started i'd go on on stage and and i'd be in front of thousands of people ethan and i'd say and i have a virtual assistant company and almost every single time somebody would come up to the mic and say hey can you tell me what a virtual assistant is? And literally that was how conferences, you know, went down um, back in 2008, nine. Um, today, most people have heard of them and it's a yeah. little bit of a thing now. Um, but you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, most medium-sized businesses and small businesses have never considered, you know, outsourcing and global workforce and talent that is just available so rapidly right now. One one of my good friends just finally said, Hey, Daniel, I'm, I'm ready for, you know, to hire some people. And, you know, in, in less than a year, he's up to five and he was growing a business without that avail- availability for the last 15 years. And so when you think about um, what's possible, you know, he has a graphics person, he has an administrative assistant, a marketing person, and all of those positions, like he just, he was living without because he couldn't find people. So um, I think more and more um, over the next probably three to five years, you're going to see more businesses embrace this, but there's a lot of regulation. So your question is, where is this going? You know, insurance industry is, is highly regulated. Healthcare is highly regulated. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of structure that, um, you know, it just takes time to break into. So how long did it actually, because obviously you've got to find these virtual assistants in the first place. So how long did it take you to build this bank of high quality individuals that you could like assign people to essentially? Yeah. Well, so we, we built, we've gone through so many echelons. I mean, one of your questions early on was like, you know, talk about some of your failures. When we first started, we thought we would build talent. Like, and you, you were like, we'd just hire somebody and they were like, I'll try marketing. And we'd put them on the marketing team, you know, and then we'd try to teach them and I'd do seminars and webinars and I'd show them tools and then we'd give them to a client and the client would have no idea how to do marketing and the virtual assistant would be like brand new at it. So we were putting back two bad people together and then crossing our fingers and hoping. So one of the biggest failures that I think, and being in the talent game, um, you know, we don't, we no longer build talent. We, we buy talent. So our service is a little bit more expensive than most of our competitors because we actually go after the high caliber talent. We go out, we find people who have, for instance, been in prospecting or been in sales for 10 years. The only difference is today they're going to sell for you, Ethan, 
That's the only difference. And so all you have to teach them is your value proposition, your core values, like who you are as a company and who your clients are, and then they can rock and roll for you. Um, but that was probably our biggest, um, you know, learning uh, curve to get over is we just needed to hire um, talent and not try to build it. So say if I have a company and I'm looking to hire someone, will the people that you assign me to only work for me or yeah. will they work for various other companies as well? Well, so when, when our clients come to us, we do an hour long conversation where we go through who's on their team, what their technology looks like, their systems and process, and then what they actually need to double their business. That's our entire kind of value to our clients. Like if, if you had to figure out, Hey, I'm making a hundred, right now and I need to get to 200. Our question is, well, what do you need to do, Ethan? Or who do you need on your team to make that a reality? And then we go through a process where we kind of analyze, okay, you need A, B, and C. We know for sure we can do B and C. A isn't in our in our talent bank or isn't in our thing. So would you like to move forward with B or C? So we're going through a consultation where we're figuring out what the strengths are of your business, what you need to grow, what you need to double, and then matching that talent with, with companies and with our, with our talent pool so that folks can grow and scale. For sure. So I imagine a question you get a lot is with regards to communication. Is yeah. that one of the biggest things people worried about in the fact that these people are from the Philippines? Obviously there's the time differences. Like how do you propose that when you have people wanting to hire a VA? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so all of our folks speak perfect English. The Philippines is one of the, the great voice countries mm -hmm. where, um, you know, the majority of the businesses there outsource voice related um, roles to that country. So um, the English skills are great. They work our night or their nights. So they're available during our days. So they'll work your schedule, whether you're in the UK or Netherlands or wherever in the world. We've got some folks in Alaska and um, just some weird, some, some folks in Hawaii. So the time zones are a little bit off, um, but they just work our time zones and they have great English skills. Um, the other thing is we let our clients interview. So we, we, we bring a pool of, you know, five or 10 people and say, Hey, these five or 10 people, here's a video, here's their resume, here's their personality profile. So we're also pulling their personality profile. So you're not kind of trying to fit somebody into a role that they're just not equipped to do, or they don't have the right fit in personality to do. So we pull all that information, hand it to the clients and then let them really go through an interview process that they're feeling comfortable with so that they can move forward with the person that would most fit their particular needs. I think it's fascinating. I do. Cause, and I think it is obviously something, well, I don't know if that you being in the industry, do you know any like specific stats of how having a, how this industry is going to go and um, like what like so what percentage of people have a va at the moment do you, do you yeah, know it's these? a really sm uh, small percentage in fact um what's what is available is how many people work remotely and right mm. now it's about three four percent um of folks work remotely at in some capacity through the month um, whether it's, you know, hey, he needs a day or to go home and be with the family. And so he works at night or evenings or whatever. And right now, this, the research says, you know, by 2028, um, that number should get to above 50%. So 53% of workers 
around the globe will work remotely as on at some capacity and so there's advances in technology that are largely bringing this about you and i you're in the uk i'm in california we're talking face to face right now i mean this technology didn't even exist when we first started i mean honestly my when we were first started my outdesk there wasn't a video conference that could you know do this real time like we are share files chat um, so even, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been huge jumps and you add into it technologies like Slack or Monday or, it, or you know, Facebook Teams or any of the technology out there to help teams collaborate and keep track of projects and keep track of files and instant messaging. You start layering on those technologies. So now teams can around the globe um, collaborate and there's not that friction that exist when you're not in an office. So, I, I mean, my, my opinion about our industry is that it's, it's going to blow up. And what we see our client, you know, we did a survey two years ago now, and we asked them, hey, how much money have you saved hiring a virtual professional, what we call a virtual assistant, versus hiring somebody in-house? And uh, the results came back above $55 million. Wow. Like, and that, and that was just a survey to our clients. So there's tremendous amount of savings. There's a tremendous amount of, abil- of availability to kind of hand select the exact kind of talent that you need for the role that is going to help you grow or double your business. And so for that reason, I just, this, this industry is going to blow up. And you're in it at the perfect time. Well, the fact you've already got an established business in this industry and the fact it's on the rise must be extremely exciting. And the thing is with the, the money aspect of it and the salary is people, yes, it say for you and I, if we ran a company, you do, and you hire a virtual professional, for you, the cost isn't great. In fact, that their salary is going to be much lower than someone if you're going to hire in-house. But that salary to that individual is luxury. Like It allows them to live a great lifestyle where they're from it might not where we are where we live but to them that's a lot of money like they even though you out of your pocket it's not much to them it's worth the world so the fact that people also need to get that in their head it's not the fact that when you when you see the price of these people it doesn't doesn't mean that the fact that you're paying them less is that they're going to have less ability and less quality as opposed to someone you'd hire in America. It's just the fact that the cost of living out there is so much cheaper than it is here. Yeah. I'll give you some examples. I mean, uh, uh, the Coke that everybody drinks around the world costs 25 cents in the Philippines. Like that soda is, you know, 25 to 50 cents, a cab ride that would cost 20 bucks is three, you know? So, it's just simply, you know, their cost of living is significantly different than ours. But they still have Harvard-like schools. They still have, um, you know, all the infrastructure that you need in order to be successful remotely. So one of the things that we're very proud of is that we provide healthcare benefits to our people. We do conferences. In fact, I'm going over there in, in I think it's two or three weeks. Um, to actually do a conference for our folks. We have an annual Christmas party, a year kickoff party. So there's a lot of, um, we provide a lot of benefits to our folks in being the middleman between our clients and our virtual professionals. We have 
you know, CPAs on staff, attorneys on staff, an entire support team were actually a legal entity in the country that we're working in. So, you know, we have contracts with our people and we're like a support mechanism for companies to consider outsourcing. And we've been doing it a really, really long time. So, you know, it's just a matter of time, I think, before more and more people pour in. And it's gonna, it's it's going to happen as well. Even like in the industry I work in, as I said before, I work in insurance. Only the past year have they allowed people to work from home. Yeah, and this is like one of. So I work for one of the biggest insurance brokers, and you would have thought we've got over forty thousand employees worldwide. You would have thought they would have adapted this process much sooner, but in reality, it's only really happened in the past year, and some people still don't like it. Like they yep. still don't agree that it should be a thing, <laughs> well, which baffles I, me. Yeah, I'll give you an example. One of our competitors, um, and I, I'm not going to name names, but they're a much smaller version of what we are, um, but they never offered remote working. So our, we have 1,200 folks in the Philippines, and they all work from their home. So we developed our own technology, so they log into a system and you know, we monitor what they're up to and we can kind of a little bit of a big brother, right? But it's for the good of the clients and the virtual professionals. We, we have some, you know, level of support and also observation about what's going on. This competitor of ours, though, they have 40% turnover. And the only reason is because they force them every day to commute into an office. And so they just turned on remote work for this outsourcing company. Um, and they're, they're already seeing a m- massive drop in the number of employees who are quitting because they don't, they don't, they don't want to come into a, an office anymore. So you start thinking about like, okay, if I don't come into an office and you know, you, you have an internal team, you know, can we still collaborate through technology? Yes. Guess what you're saving? You don't have to buy them a laptop. You don't have to have an office space for them. Yeah. You know, there's just like all these expenses that just melt away. And because of that, that expense kind of going away, now you have a more profitable business. Then your employees are like, I'm happier because I now, you know, Monday afternoon, I can go and see my daughter's play at her school and come back to work and not miss anything. And it's not really a big deal. So now you, you've, you're saving money. Your employees are quitting less. And guess what? You're going to scale and grow because of just those two factors. So for example, if I didn't have to commute into work, I'd save 7,000 pounds a year, which is about eight and a half thousand dollars. That's how much my commute alone is. Personally, I like being in the office environment. It's much easier for what I do personally, Mm -hmm. but I see why a lot of people do work remotely because the benefits are tremendous. Well, and I think the the future is going to be blended where a guy like yeah. you might go in on a Monday, meet with your team, work from mm-hmm. home Tuesday, Wednesday, part of Thursday, and then commute on half of Thursday and Friday. Mostly just traffic, right? You want to avoid <laughs> traffic and lines and the, you know, the tube. I mean, getting well, packed, all that. It's disgusting in the mornings. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um. I asked you to prepare two of what you believe to be your two biggest failures in your entrepreneurial journey so far. It's just something yep. I like asking, asking everyone because failures are something 
that we don't normally share. We're only normally comfortable sharing our highlights. And it's evident on platforms like Instagram and LinkedIn and things like LinkedIn's LinkedIn's more transparent, I think, but Instagram especially just seems to be one big highlight reel. You see these entrepreneurs and the lifestyle looks fantastic. Fast cars, nice holidays, big houses. When in reality, it's taken a hell of a lot of work and a lot of failures to get to that point. So Mm -hmm. that's why I I like asking about the failures. So what do you think have been your two biggest failures in your journey so far? Yeah, one, uh, one that I love to share is my honeymoon story. So um, one of the catalysts for growing my outdoors to a really big proportion was, um, you know, I'm on my honeymoon with my wife. We're in Guatemala. We're at a Francis Ford Coppola resort um, in the trees. There's monkeys everywhere. You know, we'd just um, gone to some some ruins and like climbed through the jungle and my wife and I are there. We're having dinner. It's candlelit. It's in the trees, like literally in the trees overlooking this huge um, lake. And it was fantastic. That night as an entrepreneur, I was at the bar at one in the morning working. And, um, you know, so biggest failure, you know, a, a big Big thing, you know, the bartender, he's Hispanic and he was like making fun of me in Spanish and I speak a little bit of Spanish and I could, he was basically saying, dumb white guy, beautiful wife on his honeymoon. He knew our story. We'd been there for several days and he's, here he is, you know, while his wife is sleeping back in the room, here he is working, you know? And so, you know, because of that moment, I was like, I don't want to, I, I definitely don't want to get a divorce. I definitely, um, you know, want to have a family one day and I can't allow my business to stop me from even enjoying this yeah. one moment. Right. Um, so, I mean, I've, so a failure, you can look at it two ways. You either lose um, and you don't really learn anything or you win and the alternative to winning is learning. So in my, in my space, I just said, okay, well, what do I need to shift in my business to make it possible for me to take vacations? And in order to strength t- uh, test that, I, we actually, my wife and I moved in 2011 to South America. We just like rented our house out, parked our cars. We put our cars up on blocks, you know, so the tires yeah. wouldn't get eroded. And so to, to strength t- test that, we spent six months in South America traveling around speaking Spanish while my outdesk, my real estate firm and an investment company that I own at the time continued to grow and continue to operate. So um, a big failure, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that moment of reflection, actually. For sure. And if you hadn't had that, I suppose you'd, you might even still be working your ass off and potentially have lost that marriage. It clearly worked quite well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, we're married, uh, almost 10 years now and no, no more than 10 years, two daughters, (laughs) seven, seven year old and a four year old. Really. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I learned that lesson relatively early in my career and I'm thankful for that because you know every once in a while you run into that 55 year old entrepreneur who's been doing it for 30 years and still works 14 hour days and half the day on Saturday and part-time on Sunday and you think oh my goodness do they not understand you know um but yeah we got lucky 
I think that's a great first failure to share. So thank you for that. What's number two? Yeah, um, there's two. There's number two. It's it's interesting. Um, I could talk about. I, I'm I'm going to ask you because I've got okay. two. I hired somebody to run my company, and that ended up not going well. And then I also had a cash crunch, a cash flow management thing. I would put those squarely um, in the number two place. So which one do you think would be best for your audience? Uh, let's talk about the person that you hired to run your okay. company. All right. Yeah. Those are always juicier, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So the, the, the cash one was easy. I just didn't understand cash flow management. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, when you're brand new, you really have to wrap your head around your balance sheet and your financials. But at some point you build a business that's big enough and then you want to hire folks to replace yourself so you can step further and further out of the daily production. My mistake specifically was that I didn't build enough system and process. One of the big pain points of our business is, you know, people will come and say, hey, we want to hire a virtual assistant. I'm saying, great. Tell me about the system or process that you have in place for that person. They're like, what are you talking about? I do everything myself, you know? And so, um, you know, one, you have to, if if you've never done the job, um, and you expect to hire somebody into it, then, you know, that's a big challenge. Um, mm-hmm. And if you hire somebody into a job that doesn't have a system or a process that already is alive and living inside of a business, then you're, you're really in trouble. I think that's some great advice as well. So would you suggest that everyone tries and learns at least some aspect of it before you hire for it? Well, this is what I, I mean, I, I'll just be straight up I mean, it could just be me, like maybe I'm that bad entrepreneur, but in my world now, what I've learned is that I typically try to pilot the job first, meaning I'll go through a process where I've done it a couple of times, I've lived in it, I know the metrics that matter, and I know the outcome that I want from that particular role. Um, And when I've done that, I've typically been able to leverage myself at a really high level. Um, When I haven't, I've had mass chaos, emotional pain, <laughs> and financial challenges. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just hired somebody. I put them in a position of um, responsibility, and there wasn't a system or a process to follow. And together, we did it together. And when we made mistakes, like, you know, it was like that weird, like, whose fault is this? Yeah. And ultimately, yeah. it was mine because, you know, we were evolving as a company. and here I am hiring somebody to try to understand my business, but they don't have the, te- the decade of experience that I do. So they're sure. at a disadvantage. Um, so yeah, my, I mean, what I learned there is just put a system and process together and, um, you know, be really clear about the folks that you're bringing in because I wasn't. And because of that, we, it causes us a lot of pain. For sure. And I suppose at my out desk, you help people, do that as well and advise them of that before you send them down that route. Oh my goodness. It's the biggest thing you can do as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, here, here's, there, there are three stages in an entrepreneurial journey. And uh, we just finished a book talking about these three different stages. And it's very simple for everybody to understand. There's the I do it stage where you're doing everything as an entrepreneur. In that stage, you're learning and growing. Then there's the we do it stage where you're hiring people to kind of come and work with you and help have them help you execute on your vision. And then there's the they do it stage where 
you know, you're hiring people and you have a team, but they're primarily doing 100% of the production and you're just in a coaching and vision and leadership role with that, with that particular uh, company. So each of those three stages have different challenges and obstacles and things you have to work through. But in the we do it, when you first start hiring uh, people, the most important thing is the system and processes that you put in place. That, that's what causes you to get to the they do it stage. For sure. And I think that's some great advice and something I'm definitely going to consider should I need it in the future. So that rounds up the main part of the podcast today but i do like to end off all my episodes with a final five so they're just quick fire questions which i hope you have quick fire answers to as well so i'll do my best (laughs) so who is the first person that comes to mind when i say the word successful Hmm. i'm i'm a big fan of zig ziglar um and his statement you know help enough people get exactly what they want and you'll get everything you want. So Zig, he's my guy. For sure. And one of my other questions in this final five, I normally ask it third, but do you have a quote or do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? Is that the quote? It's not, but um, it has to do with service. Um, The highest calling as a leader or as a person is to serve. Um, And, you know, there's a bazillion quotes out there, but I've always found... Mm -hmm. I'm happiest as an entrepreneur and as a leader when I literally am in a position of just helping and serving my people win and the people in my life. So it, my quote's all about service. For sure. And I think that's one of the biggest things in business is providing value for others. It's only going to pay dividends in the long run. Yep. So what's the best investment you've ever made? This can be money, time, energy, or just simply an Amazon purchase. Uh, Amazon purchase. I love it, man. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, as an entrepreneur, and I want you guys to hear this, I spend a lot, an, a ton of money on self and personal care. Um, yeah. It's not the most popular topic uh, as CEOs or, or entrepreneurs, but, you know, I have a therapist that I see twice a month. I have a spirit coach that I see twice a month. I'm in regular workouts. Um, basically every single day. I do meditation in the morning. I sit in a hot tub every day um, to kind of clear my head and get ready for the day. I journal on a daily basis. So my routine for self-care, I spend a ton of money in that space. And you, um, this is a topic that just not very many CEOs talk about. If you're not at your best, then you can't expect your people to be either. So um, that's an area that I spend a lot of money on. That is one thing I completely agree with. And I always say that you can't put a price on your health, can you? That is one thing that is just mm-hmm. invaluable. Like You only get one life, so you may as well take care of yourself whilst you're living it. And that's why I make sure I go to the gym five times a week. I try to get enough sleep. I know for a fact I do not, but I'm trying my hardest to get better. And it's just something I'm, I am always conscious of. So I couldn't agree more on, your lap, on that point there. Um, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Mm, Focus. I mean, Mm. uh, one of the things that I'm very clear about right now is that I don't have a lot of irons in the fan, in the fire. And when I was 20, 25, even 30, I would, I'd have multiple little projects going and that always seemed to be, uh, well, I just, I've got a little bit of the, a touch of the ADD. You know, so I, 
you know, I enjoy new, I enjoy different. Um, but as a, uh, an entrepreneur now for almost 20 years, focus. Great point to make. Final question. And I'm sorry to end the show on a morbid note, but I asked this because I get some seriously, seriously interesting answers. And I'll ask you to elaborate on your answer a little bit. So the question is, are you afraid of dying? Right now, for sure. Um, Why? I don't, well, I don't think I've done what I need to do in the world. Um, so last year, for the first time, um, our organization gave away um, six figures, which was a huge accomplishment for me personally. Um, and I was a wrestling coach and, you know, gave away 25 hours a week of in contribution, purely giving to others with nothing in return. Um, I'd like to see uh, a really big impact before I, before I pass away, not only in, you know, my community, my direct community, but that of the Philippines where we primarily operate and also just my family and, and the, the folks that I'm lucky enough to call friends. Um, so yeah, no, I would not want to pass right now because I got some stuff to do. <laughs> of course. And thank you for sharing that as well. Cause that's obviously very, very humble of you and very thoughtful of you to be giving back to your community because not many people do donate to charity or give back to their community in ways where they don't expect anything in return. They're always not, well, not always, but there always seems to be some kind of publicity expected in return sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and or nothing is superb. Four years ago, I I was at zero contribution for, and so, um, yeah, it's been a big deal changer for us. Well, thank you for doing so. Um, that's all I've got for you today. And thank you for all of your answers. They've been absolutely fantastic. And I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. But where can my listeners follow up with you if they've got any questions, simply want, want to connect? And what are you doing at the moment? I know you wanted to mention your book. Yeah, we just finished a book. Um, you know, we talked about the I, we and they. Um, and for all of your listeners, um, we'd love you guys to jump on our website and get a copy for free. It's an Amazon bestseller, an international bestseller, which is always funny for me to say. For some reason, folks in Japan really loved it and downloaded it a lot. Uh, I don't know why or how or what, but um, you know the, the, the title of the book is Scaling Your Business with Mod Virtual Professionals. So it's everything that you need to know about you know, hiring a virtual assistant, what you need to get ready, what the process will look like. And, you know, a lot of basically tips and tricks of, you know, the 13 years that we've been in business. So you can get that by just going to our website, myoutdesk.com and it's forward slash scale. So S-C-A-L-E and you can actually download a free copy right there. Amazing. And I will leave that in the show notes below along i'll link your linkedin profile and things like that if people want to reach out and connect with you if they've got any questions i'm sure you'd be happy to help because you've been happy enough to jump on this podcast which i can't thank you enough for so daniel thank you for joining me on this episode of ceo journals it's my pleasure thank you So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. 
I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.